Hello? Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you doing? I called up Senator Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington State, to talk about her career-long obsession with childcare. Sorry for a little bit of a delay. I am hiding in a closet from my children right now, which the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. We were both multitasking in this conversation. The senator was between votes. That's why she's on her cell phone. (laughs) I love that you're laughing. That is real. Been there. (laughs) Been there. (laughs) Yeah. If the senator sounds a little giddy here, it's because she can almost taste a legislative victory. She's been plotting since before she was elected. With the president putting the weight of his office behind policies that would make daycare and preschool more accessible, that would provide paid family leave, she senses an opportunity. When I first came into the Senate in 1993, January 1993, the first bill we did on the floor was unpaid family leave. And it took almost a month to get it through. Senator Senator Ted Kennedy was working hard to get Republican votes for it. And all I could think of is this is unpaid, but it's a step forward. Certainly, we will very soon do paid leave, so it's real for more people. Here we are almost 30 years later, and today I had a hearing on unpaid family leave. And it's like, when will these guys ever get it that these are real issues and either we fix them or we're going to be just in trouble for another 30 years? Arguably, over the last three decades, the closest the U.S. has come to expanding support for working families was when Donald Trump guaranteed paid family leave for federal workers back in 2019. And then the pandemic happened. Reporters who I talked to about numerous issues were saying, by the way, I have kids. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Are you guys going to get this done? (laughs) You know? I was hearing from businesses, from chambers of commerce who were trying to keep some semblance of order, who couldn't get their employees to come to work simply because of childcare. I mean, it was it's simply everybody was facing the same crisis. That's such a good point about the chambers of commerce, where it's like before they didn't have to really bear the brunt of whatever the parents were experiencing. The parents were figuring it out. That changed. Yeah, it changed. Today on the show, if the president's plans to expand the social safety net stand a chance, it's because of known dealmakers like Senator Murray. So we'll talk strategy. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to tell your story a little bit, because when I was reading about your background, it was just really interesting to me. One of your advisors from your first run for Senate quoted you as saying, I know I probably can't win, but I have to run because you can't have a bunch of old white guys sitting around deciding things for American families. And then you 
had a bit of luck or maybe something else, I don't know, where the incumbent you were running against had a sexual assault allegation against him. And very suddenly you were in the Senate. Can you tell me about getting there and and whether you were surprised along the way? Oh, I, I ran for the United States Senate because I was watching the U.S. Senate not talk about the issues that were ones I was stressing with, seeing other people stress with, whether it was health care or education or child care or family leave. And I kept looking at the Senate and I sort of really saw it during the Clarence Thomas hearings where, whoa, there's nobody like me sitting there talking about this. Of course, they're not talking about the issues that are important to me. So I told my friends I was going to run for the Senate. I got a you know laugh. But Pretty soon everybody <laughs> realized, yeah, I was speaking for them and that no one else was. And this is what the kind of thing they really wanted us talking about in the Senate. And that's really was the impetus behind me becoming elected. You did this ad that played up your role as a quote unquote mom in tennis shoes. A dozen years ago, a young parent and educator traveled to Olympia to fight for a state schools program. A legislator told her... You can't make a difference. You're just a mom in tennis shoes. Patty Murray won that battle, was elected to the Senate, and has become... Yes. When my kids were little, they were three and five, our state legislature shut down a co-op preschool program that my kids were enrolled in. And I thought they just didn't know what they were doing. So I put my kids in the car, drove 100 miles to the Capitol, and just started telling people that we needed to fix this because it was really an important program. And a state legislator told me exactly this. That's nice, but you cannot make a difference. You're just a mom in tennis shoes. (laughs) And that's what propelled me into politics because I thought, well, yeah, we need moms in tennis shoes helping to make the decisions that impact every single one of us. So I took that moniker and ran with it. But I think some people would worry that you say that and you run the risk of your colleagues looking at you as just a mom in tennis shoes. Like, oh, that's the person with those issues. Ha. I will tell you, there are so many moms and dads who've been put down time and time again when they raise an issue that's important because those people who don't want you to get this done usually put you down. So I had so many people who knew that feeling of, well, your issue isn't that important, you know, or you're not, that's not what we should be talking about, Um, who felt like I did. Yeah, you know, we do need to be talking about these issues and no, you're not going to put me down. And yes, I am going to be a vote and a voice in the Senate who speaks out on these issues. You've told the story about how when you first got to the Senate, you were pushing for the Family Medical Leave Act, and you went onto the floor and gave a speech about how important it was, and, and you talked about a friend who couldn't spend time with their dying teenager without fearing they'd lose their job. Yeah. At a time when hospital bills and doctor bills were piling up, she had to choose between her paycheck and her son. That was not right. Can you talk a bit about how your colleagues responded when you told that story? I remember it as if it were yesterday. I had a male senator come over to me afterwards and say, we don't tell personal stories on the floor of the United States Senate. And I remember just looking right at him and said, I came here to tell personal stories about what's happening to people so we can change laws to make them work for people in this country. The Family and Medical Leave Act requires larger businesses to give workers up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave per year for family and medical emergencies. Basically, it protects your job while you're out taking care of someone you love. 
one of the people present at the bill signing was a mom who'd been fired from her job as a receptionist because she had to stay home with a sick daughter. The legislation was a compromise. There were exceptions and loopholes. But for its supporters, there was a hope that this was a first step, that labor laws would now be made to serve working families. You've said that you thought the FMLA was just a beginning and that it would be sort of the first start. Why wasn't it? Like, what happened after that? I, you know, I feel like what happened was people had the, well, we already did that. And these are people, by the way, who get paid enough that they don't have to worry about unpaid family leave if you have somebody in your family who died or you just had a baby. So there was no understanding that this didn't work for a lot of people because it was unpaid. I'm so glad you said that because we've talked a bit about you as a woman and how you were groundbreaking in that regard when you came to the Senate. But you also have a history of being in a family that needed food stamps. And that's something that's a lot harder to see and probably a lot harder for a lot of people to talk about. But I wonder if in some ways that kind of diversity in the Senate is just as necessary and harder to get. There is no doubt about it. If you understand from a personal perspective what it's like to live through, you know, real experiences that people have, rather than coming from a wealthy or an elite background, then you stand on that floor of the Senate and you fight for it. I understood the need for those kinds of policies, including food stamps, because my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was a teenager. There were seven kids in our family. And my mom, who literally thought she was going to stay home and raise seven kids, all of a sudden had to go out, get some skills, get a job, raise seven kids, and take care of my dad. And we made it because of food stamps, because my dad was a veteran and got some VA benefits. We made it because there were those support systems in place that helped families. And I just know how many families in this country today don't have a megaphone, but they're living with these issues. And it's our job to lift them up and be there at their back and help them become United States senators or whatever that they can be. Otherwise, we're we're losing so much of our population. But it's personal to me. I've lived it. So when you would tell your colleagues that after the Family and Medical Leave Act passed, which is, of course, 12 weeks of unpaid leave, so it's helpful, but if you don't have a cushion there, it's not as helpful as it might seem. When you would tell them, like, listen, this isn't working for a substantial portion of people in this country, what would they say? Well, usually it was the pat on the head, oh yeah, I understand, and then never making it a priority. I'll tell you what has changed is now we have more women in the Senate, more people with that lived experience, more men, younger men whose wives are at work, who are also struggling with how, you know, we take care of kids and do jobs. And so it's not just me at a committee raising it once in my five minutes of time. It's echoed throughout the Senate by other people. And this pandemic has made that echo into just a roar from constituents who are telling their members of Congress this has to be taken care of. After the break, how the shortcomings of past legislation gave Democrats the ambition to make childcare more affordable. 
coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So let's talk about the legislation at stake now, the American Families Plan. Can you just walk me through what the major tent poles are and, and how they might change a young person's life? Well, what the Child Care for Working Families Act does is it really works to make child care more affordable. I have talked to so many people who have not taken a promotion or added hours because they couldn't afford more child care. So we make sure that no working family under 150% of state median income pays more than 7% of their income on child care. And families who are earning above 75% of state median pay their fair share on a sliding scale. Families under 75% don't pay anything at all. So the first thing we do is say, we're going to make it affordable for you. Secondly, we're improving the quality by helping to pay for teachers. Ask any child care provider. Turnover is huge. Pay is really 
low. It's hard to keep people in those jobs. They can go make more at McDonald's than they can taking care of people's kids. So improving the pay is really a critical part of this and the skills to make sure that they have what they need to be able to do these kinds of jobs. I think I can hear the Republican pushback already just because I've heard it before, which is people make their choices and they should only make choices that they can afford. Well, first of all, the talking point um, that I heard today at our hearing actually was that, well, you guys are just making it um, so parents want to go to work rather than stay home with their kids. It was Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney who brought this up at the hearing this week during a back and forth with one of the hearing's panelists. I didn't realize I was at a disadvantage because I was raised by my <laughs> mom who stayed home. There seems to be a, a very significant bias toward providing child care and pre-K education and so forth, uh, which encourage, if you will, women and men going into the workforce, as opposed to saying, hey, if one of you wants to stay and raise the child, that's acceptable too. Uh, I almost leaped out of my chair. People don't choose to go to work because they're lazy. They don't choose to go to work because they just want to do something. They choose to go to work so they can put food on the table and make sure their kids can go to college and make sure that they can afford this economy that we live in today. And in doing so, they increase the skills at workplaces and they help our economy grow. So I don't buy that for a minute. I think it is essential that we make sure that people have those basic infrastructure things they need so they can go and make sure their family's okay, their community's okay, the business that they work for profits, and we all do better. So that's just an outdated, crazy argument. It's a funny pushback the you're trying to push people into work when for such a long time. We talked about it as a real value to, for instance, tie welfare benefits to working. (laughs) Not only that, but I am assuming that most parents feel like I do. I want the choices for my daughter and other daughters that if they want to go to work and use their brains and their skills and be competitive and help their families, I want them to have that choice. I don't want them to have to be forced to stay home because there isn't any quality care. I don't want them to have to be forced to go to work. I want the options there. And the way we do that is providing quality child care so people can go to work and make that kind of choice. You've been known as a deal maker in your time on Capitol Hill. And when I say that, I mean you'd meet up with pretty conservative people like Paul Ryan and try to understand their perspectives so you could think about how to move legislation forward. And I wonder a bit about whether your approach to compromise has changed at all over the last four years, over the last six months. It's a good question. And what I do and always do, and in order to be successful, you need to listen to what the other side says. Ideas that are crazy, you debate them, but you listen to what they want. You debate them. The crazy ones you debate? Yeah, sure. But but you listen to what some of their needs are. And if you can give them something so they feel like there's a win and they get something too, then you can get a deal. I will tell you, I've listened carefully to people who say, oh, we don't need childcare. Um, you know, if they say we people can just stay home, then I, I will debate them. 
But if they say, well, you know, how do we afford this? Then they're saying we need it. There's very few Republicans today who are saying childcare is not a, a problem. They know it too. Um, they know it for their own employees. They know it for their constituents. They know it for their family. The solution is what is hard to get to. And I'm listening and trying to get to a solution that works for everybody. We all want to solve this. Do you really think so? Because like Mitch McConnell has said, this plan, it's it's something that liberals want, but not quote unquote Americans. <laughs> and I know that there's statistics <laughs> that say a lot of Americans the, do want this. That's one of those crazy arguments you go, oh, where is he coming from? Let's focus on what we're trying to do. But how do you debate him? You say you debate the crazy arguments. <laughs> well, on that one, I just blow past it. Because seriously, if you talk to anybody in this country um, that is not super wealthy, you know that childcare is an issue and that people are falling behind because they don't have access. And I just say this to anybody who makes a crazy statement. Anybody who's at work and is worried about the safety of their kids in a childcare situation or worried about what they're going to do tomorrow about their childcare isn't performing to their best ability. They're just not. So if you want people in your own office or your own family or your own community to be able to do the best job they can, then let's solve this problem. It's a productivity issue. You've spoken pretty emotionally about what it was like to be in the Senate on January 6th, and you've clearly been angry with some of your colleagues who were urging rioters on. It made me wonder about compromise right now, what it looks like across the aisle, whether how much you're thinking about it and how it changes your approach. Well, that's a a challenging question because there are some of my colleagues across the aisle who I think are not willing to help our democracy work. Look, what our democracy is, is people putting forward ideas, debating them, counting the votes, making the arguments. My vote, my voice is what makes this democracy work. Everybody's vote and voice makes this democracy work. If I have Republican senators who think that we should take over the government by brute force or win an issue by brute force, then they're not worthy of working with. Hmm. It made me wonder if if some of the main people you're thinking of compromising with right now are actually Democrats. I mean, Democrats have a slim, slim majority Mm -hmm. in the Senate. And of course, there's the issue of the filibuster, which... Most of the time means that you do need Republicans to get legislation through. But I wonder how you're thinking about approaching senators like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, Mark Kelly, and saying, how do we make this work for you and, and what you think you will need to give them? Well, it's what I'm talking to all of my Democratic colleagues, finding out what is their a barrier here to any of this? Is there something that you think is a better idea? How do we get that done? What are they telling you? Well, we all share the same goal. We know that childcare is an issue. We know that for our economy to recover, we know that for women to be able to go back to work, um, that we have to deal with the childcare issue. But what do they need? Is it about money? Is it about something else? I'm working on finding that out. Senator Patty Murray, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. 
Patty Murray is a Democratic U.S. Senator from Washington State. She served in the Senate since 1993. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Carmel Delshad, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. You can always track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Tomorrow in this feed, stay tuned. Lizzie O'Leary will be here with What Next TBD. That's our Friday show. She's going to be talking about the economics of ransomware and that pipeline that came under attack. You can listen as long as you wire us $4.4 million. Just kidding. I'll talk to you on Monday. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.